0: all right good morning welcome to the waterlogged edition of lake forest davidson whether you are cautious about jesus curious about jesus or committed to jesus there's room for you here this is a safe place for you to learn to grow and to change so long as you don't have it all together you'll fit right in The round reminds us that we are all active participants as we stay on this journey together. We're all here to receive something this morning. We also all have something to give. So as we soak in the grace and truth of God's love, we can also pour out love by serving others. Today we want to continue in our series called Asking for a Friend. We are looking at some of the big objections that people might have to the Christian faith or just big questions that people have related to the Christian faith. And sometimes when we raise these questions, we are asking for a friend, quote unquote. But then other times we are actually asking for a friend. Someone has asked us a question, we don't feel equipped to answer it, and so we want to understand a little bit more so that we might be a helpful uh, friend to them as they ask tough questions. 1 Peter 3.15 says, "...in your hearts revere Christ as Lord." Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So in this passage, Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering for doing good. They are suffering for doing what is right. Peter reminds them to revere Christ as Lord. In other words, to keep Christ at the center of their lives, especially when things are tough. Not just even when things are tough, but especially when things are tough. Peter implies that when you follow Jesus, it begins to change you and that people will start to notice the change and they will start to ask you for the reason, for the hope that you found in Jesus. Now, that may come out in a number of different ways, but Peter says when they begin to ask that question, be ready to give an answer. Don't be a possum. This is a very important piece of theology here I'm about to give you. Don't be a possum. When in a scary situation, a possum only has two tools in its toolbox. It can either play dead or it can hiss and try to bite you. So Peter's saying, don't be a possum. When you have a hard question about God or you ask a hard question about God, have more tools in your toolbox than to play dead or try to scare the person off or scare the question off. Don't be afraid to enter into the danger. Don't be afraid to to see if there's not a robust answer to a good and robust question. And do this with gentleness and respect. That's what the Scripture encourages us, the tone to set, gentleness and respect. We try to cultivate that in our church family. I hope that we each try to cultivate that in our own lives and even with our own questions about God, gentleness and respect. One of the ways you can do that is to even enter into a, 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 a difficult question by kind of saying, you know, I really don't feel like an expert in God, right? Hopefully you don't feel like an expert in God. If you ever feel like an expert in God, let me know. I can help with that. <laughs> but I don't really feel like an expert in God, uh, and so I'm going to fumble around on this answer a little bit, but I hope you can cut me some, some slack on that, and I imagine the person, the person will. Well, so today the question we want to look at, if you've been here the last few weeks, uh, Gray, one of our pastors, was uh, preaching. He, uh, there was faith in science, like does science disprove faith? And then how can there be a good God and evil? How can they be uh, the same? So today I have a very hard question. My question is, how much does Jesus love you? That's a joke. That's not the question I'm doing. The actual question today is, how hot is hell? Gray, you want to come up and (laughs) take that one on? (laughs) The question for today is, is Christianity actually good? Is Christianity actually good? This question can come in any number of forms. Questions like, you know, there's so much violence in the world that's religiously motivated. Wouldn't the world be better off without religion? Or if people have done terrible things under the banner of Jesus, people you know, so usually name things like the Crusades, uh, different forms of oppression, these abuse scandals that are coming out now. So isn't Christianity actually part of the problem? Isn't Christianity a symbol of what's wrong with the world? The underlying question in all this, is Christianity actually good? Is following Jesus the cure or is it actually the disease? So so I'd like to approach this question in sort of two parts. The first half of the sermon, I would like to try to explore the core of the Christian faith and do it through the passage that we heard earlier. And then the second half of the sermon, I'd like to do a thought exercise with you. That's what we're going to do. Because there is no doubt that people have done horrible things in the name of Jesus. No one debates that. I don't know anyone who debates that. But the question is, do those things line up with the core of the Christian faith? Are are they in line with what Jesus wanted people to do or outside of what Jesus wanted people to do? So do they line up what is the core of the Christian faith? And then have there ever been examples to the contrary of people doing good things in the name of Jesus? I have a thought exercise on that. And I hope I can do all this with gentleness and respect and hope you will receive it in the same way. So here we go, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, one of the clearest articulations of the Christian faith at its core. It begins this way, verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Welcome to church, everybody. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. This can be hard for some folks to hear, but from the Bible's perspective, when we live apart from God, we are dead. We are spiritually dead. We are disconnected from God. God is the source of all life. And if you are disconnected from the source of all life, you are dead, spiritually dead. So the world, from a Bible's perspective, is kind of like a giant zombie movie where, where you have all these sort of dead folks wandering around, maybe not even realizing that they're not fully alive. And this is where Jesus comes in. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. So into this zombie movie that we call our lives, in comes Jesus Christ. And who sent Jesus? God sent Jesus your Creator the Creator of the world sent Jesus into this story so that this story could be a redemptive story and why did God send Jesus God sent Jesus because his love for us is great because he is rich in mercy so then is Jesus something we earn is Jesus something that we deserve no Jesus is a gift Jesus is a God-given gift, a gift given out of love, a gift motivated by mercy. And what does Jesus do? Jesus makes us alive. Jesus breathes life into our zombie existence. He breathes abundant and everlasting life into our existence. The Bible summarizes this by saying, it is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace you have been saved. Saved is the verb form of the noun salvation. Salvation refers to redemption. Salvation refers to healing. Salvation refers to the death of our zombie existence so that we might truly come alive. Salvation refers to being reconciled to God. Salvation refers to being welcomed into God's eternal family. Salvation refers to being transformed from the inside out. And the Bible says that Christians have been saved by grace. Now, if you know anything about me, you know that I love verb conjugation. I love long walks on the beach and verb conjugation. So, the sentence says, you have been saved, it is by grace that you have been saved. You have been saved. That verb is passive, you have been saved. When it's a passive verb, action is not done by the subject, action is done to the subject. For example, consider this sentence, I was injured when two people got in a fight at the Taco Bell. What did I do in that sentence? Not much. (laughs) What did I? Got hurt. Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, I did not do very much in that sentence, right? There was this fight and it started to swirl and I got caught up in the swirl. So the Bible says, You have been saved by grace. What did you do in that sentence? Not much. God was the one at work, God was the one doing, God was the one bringing salvation to this world, and you and I got caught up in the swirl of that. It is by grace that you have been saved. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's a gift. Our zombie existence dies just as Jesus Christ died. And then we are raised up into new life just as Jesus was raised from the dead. And it's all a gift from God. It is all God's grace. So verse 8 continues, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast." The Bible is repeating itself here. Not because you're thick-headed, but maybe someone sitting near you is thick-headed. Maybe the pastor of the church, for that matter. The Scripture is going out of its way to point out, you and I are not made right with God by works. We are not reconciled to God by doing good things. We receive God's gift. We receive God's grace to us through faith. And the original Greek there, the word faith and the word trust and the word belief were all the same word. So we receive God's grace in our lives, not by trying to earn it, but we receive it through faith. Through trust, through trusting our lives into the hands of Jesus, through trusting that His ways are better than our ways, trusting that He is trustworthy, trusting that He is worthy of our lives, trusting that He has done all that's needed through His life, through His death, through His resurrection. He has done all that's needed to reconcile us to God. We trust that our lives will be better off when He is at the center of them. And so verse 10 concludes by saying, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So does God care about us doing good? Does God care about good works? absolutely he does you could have taken the previous verses that said it's not by works and said oh okay then it's not about uh works and maybe god doesn't care about it but no this verse makes it very clear god does care about you and i doing what is good but god also cares about the order our good deeds our good works play no part in our salvation they play no part in our reconciliation to god you and i have nothing to add to god's grace And in fact, this is a good thing, because it means that we have nothing to brag about. We have nothing to boast about. This is why when people are self-righteous, they ultimately look silly, because Jesus is the victor, and we just get to share in His victory. We have nothing to brag about in that. We're kind of like the guy who sat up in the stands the whole game, and then you you start trash-talking after the game is over. It's like, dude, you didn't do a single play. The team won the game. You just get to share in the victory. Same kind of thing with Jesus. Verse 10 affirms, you and I are God's handiwork. We're God's creation. God is at work in your life. God is at work in you. You are his handiwork. He is taking even the broken pieces of your life and making them into a masterpiece. You're God's handiwork. You're created in Christ Jesus. Jesus will breathe life into you in order to do good works. So do good works matter to Jesus? Oh yes, they do. But good works are an output, they're not an input. Doing what is good is an output, it's not an input. Doing what is good is a result of your relationship with God. It's not your resume to start the relationship. Jesus breathes life into zombie people so that we can join His mission in the world, so that we can do good to the people of the world. So I'm finishing up the first part. What is the core of the Christian faith? And then we get to go to the thought exercise. What is the core of the Christian faith? In the language of Ephesians 2, the core of the Christian faith is that salvation, in other words, an eternal right relationship with God, salvation is by grace, by God's grace, received through faith so that we might do good works. Salvation, an eternal right relationship with God, is a matter of God's grace received through faith so that we might do good works. God loves us, and so God reaches out to us. God sent Jesus to breathe life into us, to reconcile us back to our Creator. How do we respond to that? We trust our lives into Jesus' hands, and then we trust Him to transform us from the inside out. And as Jesus transforms us from the inside out to do what is right, to do what is good, that can take multiple forms. It it looks like doing what is moral or ethical in tough situations. It also looks like being merciful and compassionate to the most vulnerable people in our society and in our world. And I suppose my thought exercise question is, has that happened throughout history? Like, we can point to people and examples of where following Jesus uh, didn't go well and, and bad things or horrible things that have happened under the banner of Jesus. But, but the, the, my question is, and when we look at the core of the Christian faith that we receive God's grace, God's gift, we receive it through faith and then it lives out as good works in our lives as we do what is moral or ethical, as we do uh, show compassion to the, the hurting. Has that happened throughout history? Can we find examples of that that actually do seem more in line with what Jesus has called us to? Have there been Christians who faithfully lived out the core of the Christian faith? So this got me to a little thought exercise, a little thought experiment, I call it. And it's based on that old quote, familiarity breeds contempt. I think that's a Chaucer quote. Somebody can double check me there. Uh, I don't. Yeah, do you think that's a Chaucer quote? Okay, no, no, okay. I think it is. Um, It may not be, though. Don't, don't, Don't write that one down. But the idea is sometimes you can be around something for so long that you begin to lose sight of it. So, what if we looked at our world? This is the thought experiment. What if we looked at our world not through our eyes for a minute, but through the eyes of, say, like a space alien, right? So, I just imagine this afternoon, Mandy and I, my wife and I, we're walking through downtown Davidson, and we come across this space alien, confused, Curious space alien. Now you got to go with me. Somehow he speaks and understands English and all this kind of stuff. But so I just imagine we see this kind of space alien-looking guy. He looks confused, and I'm good at spotting space aliens. I watch the X Files, so I can kind of tell this is a space alien. And uh, I say, you know, hey, how are you? And he goes, Where am I? I say, Well, you are in Davidson, North Carolina, on planet Earth in the Milky Way galaxy. And he's like, That's fascinating. Are you from here? And I, well, yeah, we live here, but I'm originally from Memphis, and my, Mandy would say I'm originally from San Francisco. And at San Francisco, the alien would say, that's an interesting uh, name. Where did that come from? Well, it's named for uh, St. Francis, right? Well, who was St. Francis? Well, St. Francis was a, a 12th uh, century follower of Jesus. He was renowned for how he loved all of God's creation. In fact, as an aside, we still sing a hymn that he wrote, All Creatures of Our God and King. Uh... That's interesting, a space alien might say. Oh, now, you said another name, Jesus. Who is, who is Jesus? You say, well, Jesus was a very uh, prominent and influential person. He actually said that He's God. He's not just a person. He's also our Creator. Um, and I've happened to believe that. In fact, if you'd like to learn more, you can always come to Lake Forest Davidson. We have services at 8, 15, 9, 30, and 11. I always throw that in, you know, even with space aliens, Communion every week at 8.15. Well, he wouldn't know what communion was, but okay, so you just keep going. Uh, and he'd say, now, okay, so where where is Jesus, Jesus? Is he he's alive now? Well, actually, Jesus lived thousands of years ago, we would say. And he lived here in Davidson? Oh, no, no, he lived like on the other side of the world. Oh, okay. Well, then, wh- where did this Davidson come from, the space alien might say? We'll say, well, the, the town was first started because of the college right over here, in Davidson. College. He said, "Well, where did that come from?" We said, "Well, it was started by Presbyterians." He said, "Well, what's a Presbyterian?" Well, I don't, I don't really know what a Presbyterian is. <laughs> would probably be my response. No, no, like uh, a, a Presbyterian—that's a group of people who who follow Jesus. He said, "What the the same Jesus?" Yeah, yeah, the, the same, the same Jesus. And and what's a What's a college? He might ask it. So, a college is a place where you go to learn and, and study, and that's all that you do there. You only learn and, and study. <laughs> but at some point, as my conversation with this space alien goes along, uh, we could talk about the concept of a university, a university, the idea that there's one body of knowledge that can be mastered so that you can better understand the complexities of God's world. That grew out of the Middle Ages, out of the, the monastic Christian monastic communities of the Middle Ages as these followers of Jesus set out to better understand God's world. In fact, if you look at the history of our own country in the United States before the Revolutionary War, there were some hundred and something, 200 colleges and universities. All but one were started by Christians. Go and read the founding charter for Harvard University. It is a fascinating exercise. They were started by Christians so that we could follow the commandment of Jesus: love the Lord your God with all your mind. It was about the honing of the mind so that you could love the Lord with all your your, all your mind. And out of those medieval universities, actually grew our modern notion of science: that God is rational, and so that God's world is rational. It can be understood. We can understand some of the complexities of it and begin to live more in line with those complexities. This would help in the. uh, healing of disease, for instance. Most of the early scientists, modern scientists even, like Galileo, like Mendel, these were Christians. They were followers of Christ. Even if they had some tussles with the authority structure sometimes, they were still Christians. So then at some point, he might want to go for a ride in one of our little earth ships that we call cars, and so we could take. he kind of got Davidson. He's figured that out. He's got a lot of the Milky Way to see. So we start to take him, and in, uh, in Charlotte, there's the largest uh, homeless shelter for women and children in the southeast United States. It's called the Salvation Army Center of Hope. We could take him by that. He might say, well, what is the Salvation Army? We would say, well, it was started in uh, England by followers of Jesus who wanted to care for the poor. He'd say, the same Jesus? Well, yeah, the the same Jesus. Did Jesus live in England, he might ask? No, Jesus didn't live anywhere near England. We might drive by a hospital. One of the big ones in our town is called Presbyterian. He might say, the same Presbyterians? Well, not exactly the same ones, but generally, yeah, the the same. Uh, In my hometown, our hospitals were named St. Jude, St. Francis, Baptist, and Methodist. Right? Because Jesus told His followers to care for those who were sick, to care for widows, to care for orphans. Now, the Roman Empire told them, don't do those things, don't care for those people. The follow- Jesus' followers decided to do it. And over the centuries, that care became institutionalized, and it began to, began to change our cultural landscape. From the leader of the Civil Rights Movement to the leader of the Human Genome Project, from Nelson Mandela in South Africa to Mother Teresa in India, and Jesus didn't live near either of those places either, space alien. I mean, at some point it makes a space alien wonder, who is this Jesus that seems to have so shaped a cultural landscape? Thousands, well, he wouldn't have known it was thousands because he wouldn't know the size of the earth, but thousands of miles away from where this person actually walked. Who is this Jesus? Closer to home on a much smaller scale, Jesus causes us to oversee a food pantry, causes us to eat dinner with those who live on the streets, causes us to educate and empower kids in Nigeria, uh, causes us to preserve language for people in the Himalayas. We have ministry partners who their life's work is to help a group of people in the Himalayan mountains preserve their language. And at the people's request, they would like a translation of the Bible so that they could understand who is this Jesus who sent you to preserve our language. So as a church, between missions and giving to other churches and all the relevant staff costs of that, we give 20 to 21% of our annual budget away to ministries outside of our church. That may seem like a lot or little. I don't know, but when I compare it to my own personal budget, Mm -hmm. that's a humbling number. And not to, to, just to deal in facts, I just like to deal in facts, which is to say that Jesus is making us a generous people. We do this because of Jesus. The poet G.K. Chesterton wrote this, Christianity, whatever else it is, is an explosion. Christianity, whatever else it is, is an explosion. Now, I'm not saying that if Jesus had never walked on the earth, there would be no hospitals or, or no, you know, homeless shelters or that sort of thing. What I am saying, though, is if you follow how those things actually arose in our time and space and our history and our culture, they get traced back to Jesus. They get traced back to this impact point called Jesus out of which this explosion of goodness happened. Who is this Jesus? In His name people have done great harm, and in His name people have done great good. So when I usually get asked this question, is Christianity actually good, that's typically how I start to respond to it. I say something like, I actually think the, the question is, is a, a harder one which is, not is Christianity good, but how have people in the name of Jesus done such harm, and how have people in the name of Jesus done such good? How do we account for that? Sometimes responding to a question with a different question is okay. Jesus did that a lot, frustratingly so for those of us who love answers. So if people have done great harm in Jesus' name, but they've also done great good in Jesus' name, how might we account for that? Here's how I account for it. I think the Scripture is true. I think that Jesus breathes life into people wandering around in a zombie world, and then those people have the ability to do great harm or great good. That faith in Jesus makes people come alive. It connects people to the source of life. It sends power, what the Bible would call God, the Holy Spirit. Power coursing through your or my existence when we put our faith in Jesus. And then it's up to each of us in relationship with Jesus to use that power, that life, that relationship with God for good. Not for evil. And then it brings the question home. It's easy to say that the problem is always somewhere out there, but what about in here? What about you? What about me? If Jesus has breathed life into your zombie existence, or if Jesus ever comes and breathes life into your zombie existence, if there is ever a point now or in the future where you are able to say, I have been saved, passive, I have been saved by grace, how do we proceed from there? Do we pull out a fiddle and let Rome burn, prop up our feet, Jesus has made us alive so that we might do what is good. In how we conduct ourselves, in how we treat the most vulnerable people, Jesus invites us to draw near to Him so that He can transform us and use our lives for good. Christianity, whatever else it is, is an explosion. And so, I would ask you to reflect with me on this question as we draw to a close. What role do good works play in your life? What the Bible calls good works. What role do good works play in your life? What role does doing what is good, doing what is right, doing what is moral, doing what is compassionate, what role do good works play in your life? Some of us may say, man, I, you know, I don't know, I don't really think much about it, don't really care much about it. I've got other priorities than doing what is right, doing what is good. Others of us may do, try, try to do what is right and do what is good, but we're trying to do it to earn God's love from the Bible's perspective, we kind of have the order mixed up. We're trying to use good works as a resume, not as a result. Others of us may care about doing what's good and doing what's right, but we don't quite know why. It's more more typical around folks uh, in my sort of age, my sort of generation. We we seem to love doing what's good or right, and sometimes when pushed, we'll say, well, I don't really know why. I, I just think everybody wants to do what's good or right. I've kind of become convinced that's a naive answer. I've met a lot of people who don't much care about doing what's good or what's right. Some of us may be following Jesus, but maybe we've we've forgotten that we are saved by grace through faith in order to do good works. Good works are critical to the Christian faith, but they come last after the grace, after the faith. Jesus invites all of us to something better. Jesus invites us to receive God's grace, to to receive Jesus breathing life into us, receive it, put our faith in Jesus, put our trust in Jesus, trust our lives into Jesus' hands and then let Him transform us from the inside out. You and I are invited to join the redemptive explosion that began at the impact point of Jesus at which the, the strength of all divinity impacted, collided with earth and forever set this story in a different motion. In our 815 service, we uh, celebrate communion weekly, and our um, Pastor David today, in, in saying that, he, he followed up this message by simply with one last line from the song we just sang, and he says, we do all of this not in our strength, but in our weakness. The Christian faith is not about... Uh, trying to relate to the world out of your strength, but trying to relate to it out of your weakness. Admitting that you do need God to breathe life into you. You do need the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. And even after you become a Christian, you need the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. We need to ask God's forgiveness for the ways that we've been a bad example of what it means to follow Jesus. But we don't do that defeated. We do that knowing that we operate out of God's strength. A strength not our own, but a strength that is really and truly transforming our lives and transforming our world, if we could have eyes to see it. So what role do good works play in your life? I pray the answer will be a bigger one than they did when I walked in that door. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, I, I lift up our congregation here, and I just want to invite everyone to take this moment and to have a time of personal prayer, personal reflection, whether talking to God or listening to God, just take this quiet moment for personal prayer. Lord, we come to you not in our strength, but in our weakness. We come to you not with a resume of good things that we've done, but with the honest admission that we have nothing to add to your grace. Lord, for those of us who are just here exploring the Christian faith, trying to figure out who Jesus is, And how that should intersect with our lives, I pray that You would help us to find rest in that reality, to see the truth of that reality, that God has already done all that is needed through Jesus Christ, and we are invited to share in that victory. Lord, for those of us who do follow Jesus, we can confess in weakness that we have not been the best examples and representatives that Jesus could have. We fall short in what we do and we fall short in what we don't do. And so, Lord, I pray that for the first time or for the thousandth time, we could receive your grace anew. We could walk from this place not thinking we have to put more on our shoulders, but thinking we can be more powered by the God of the universe. And Lord, I pray that we would do good things in your name, that we would care for hurting people, that we would do what is right, that we would take the moral high ground in your name, but not in our strength, but in your strength. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's stand, let's worship God with our voices, our offering, and our prayer requests.